Well, hello everyone. Thanks again for joining us here at the PLS 377 podcast. Um, this week, uh, we're going to be kind of continuing the process of trying to develop some foundation uh, that hopefully we'll be able to um, build upon and, and continually come back to throughout the course. And the topic for this week is roughly speaking, modernity and its critics. And um, how I want to frame this week is to consider modernity as a kind of tableau, as a kind of tapestry on which the events and people and ideas and conflicts that we're going to be exploring um, throughout the course kind of reside in, right? That um, in some ways and in some of the thinkers we're going to encounter in the class this week, like Max Weber or Karl Marx, Adam Smith, um, amongst others, are people that I think sat at a very important and kind of critical juncture in social and human history um, in terms of the kinds of politics and economics uh, that we have today. And looking at how they saw the world and how they saw modernity, I think provides us with a valuable set of insights about our current condition. Um, the author and, and um, very important social theorist, Anthony Giddens, uh, wrote an excellent book um, years back called The Consequences of Modernity. And, and I think um, one of the arguments among many of the good ones that Giddens puts forward in that book is that the issues we're facing now in, in the seemingly rising bifurcation or polarization of society or, or what have you, or the seeming lack of ability to even agree upon some basic foundational facts and, and so forth um, you find in many places across the world, is not... Um, in some sense, a consequence of moving beyond modernity or what many call like postmodernity, but it's are, are, are actually the consequences of a set of processes and ways of approaching the world that were part and parcel to modernity as we know it itself, right? And another way we can kind of think about this is that the processes, um, not just technology and industry and so forth, um, but as we've noted already in the course, the connected social changes and, and outlook on the world, right? That modernity provided a new mechanism from which to kind of think about how we should organize society, how we should understand what goals we should have. And of course, I'm speaking very broadly and there can be wide variations within within these parameters but i think there is some common threads about it and and in some ways these processes set up a bunch of questions that continue to challenge us to this day and that's maybe one of the big themes that i want to stress this week is that these challenges of modernity in terms of how we manage and organized society given the technology we have given the rapid urbanization um, of society uh, given the fact that we now um, live in in our tied to sets of ethics and values and ideas about what we should be pursuing in our life that are um, 
tend to not be rooted in in sort of customs or traditions or or local communal ideas of the good or social organization. And um, I think that's one of the things that's interesting about thinkers of the time we're going to be looking at, um, particularly stretching from the mid 18th century into the early 20th century. So it's a a pretty long period. Um, These people at this time were still much closer, um, particularly those writing um, in the 18th century, like Adam Smith. Um, He had contemporary David Hume, uh, who had were much closer to what we would consider more of a traditional mode of rationalizing or legitimating society or legitimating the political and social order, um, which was often, again, rooted in tradition, rooted in ideas of, um, you know, kind of blood passing down from generation to generation, um, uh, authority and families having kind of claims to authority based in family history and blood relations and so forth, right? And um, this obviously was took on many different forms all around the world, but there was a certain similarity um, in that, in these societies. And and what modernity did was upend that and change the locus of where legitimacy lies and and what constitutes a well-run or or legitimate and, and properly organized society, these kinds of big questions. And if you do the advanced Um, reading for this week, which I highly recommend. It's an excerpt from just one of the most interesting books I've I've ever read by Albert Hirschman called The Passions and the Interests. And I mean, that's kind of what Hirschman's getting at. Like modernity, to the extent that we associate it with industrial capitalism or industrialization or um, commercialization, however you want to put it, uh, constituted a complete reversal of certain premises about what is an admirable way to live and comport oneself in that most traditional societies, and that's an interesting connection between um, societies in East Asia and in Western Europe, uh, really looked down on people who pursued commercial wealth and worked to make money for money's sake or worked in finance, right? And that the elite considered themselves to be people of culture and learning and civilization. Now, of course, these are all ideal types and things are much messier in reality, but I think it's still an int- it's important and an interesting point to think about. And that's kind of one of the questions Hirschman asks is, how do we get from A to B? How do we get from societies that, again, disdained? And I, I know particularly in Korea, people who were engaged in commercial activity were considered some of the lowest people in the social order in terms of being too earthly and obsessed with wealth. And, um, you know, many of the elites saw this as the most base and profane kind of activity. And now we live in a world where people who are able to engage in this activity and achieve great wealth are, are the heroes of our um, society. And, 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 you know, in some ways, maybe it's because they have some inventive or in, inventiveness or ingenuity, but largely that is measured in how much money they make and how wealthy they become. Um, and that is, it's fascinating, you know, that's a fascinating question. And, and I said, that's not to say that that's a bad thing or that the old ways are so great. Um, I think that's the wrong way to think about this is that it's just a massive and, and fairly quick kind of reorientation of what 
the goal of, 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 of human life at the individual level and human life at the societal or social level should be or can be. Um, and I, I think that's an, an interesting way to think about this. And, and again, a lot of the questions that kind of float out of these changes continue to be questions that we are forced to grapple with today. Um, you know, what does it mean to be a capitalist society and be just? What does it mean to be a democratic society and a capitalist society and be just? Um, what do we mean by economic justice in this context? What do we mean by ethics or fairness within this context? And again, as we move through the course, um, we're going to be looking at a lot of these questions as they unspooled um, over the last 50 or 60 years and, and going right into the present, um, where a lot of the debates about inequality or equality and, and so forth um, continue to dominate um, the political debate and, and frictions of our time. How much taxes should wealthy people pay? A lot? A little? You know, middle? I don't know. You know, these are kinds of questions that are ultimately rooted in ethical perspectives on what is fair, what is just. And I think the mechanisms we bring to thinking about them are rooted in the set of social processes tied with modernity, right? That again, it's like a, a tapestry um, that the debates we have and the questions we engage are, are painted onto, and it kind of frames in that way how we think about these things, um, for better or for not. And so I think going back and looking at how some of these foundational and core thinkers um, about modernity and, and what they saw as the changes tied to modernity, um, one of the thinkers we're going to be discussing next week is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was actually writing and kind of debating this, you know, as early as in the, in the early um, part of the 18th century, right? So these are people who are almost in some ways, the way I look at them is they're straddling, they have feet in both worlds, right? They're, they're, they, they still are close enough to the old order, but can see um, the new order. And as we get to people in the later modern age, or kind of early modern age, people like Marx and Weber, they're going to be much have a much clearer idea, but I think people like Adam Smith and Rousseau are fascinating because again, they kind of have, are straddling these worlds. And I think their insights um, can often be much clearer and more direct because again, they don't have a lot of the baggage that we've accumulated over a hundred years of social and philosophical and political and economic thought. Um, and they tend to be revealing in that. So I hope that we can explore and I can bring some of that perspective um, this week in the class. And I think the reading this week by Smith, um, the required reading, does a great job of pointing to some of these, what I think are perennial and enduring questions that were unleashed by modernity, right? That modernity and enlightenment and all these things didn't answer all these questions. It wasn't like an answer to how to do it, but it was it, in some ways unspooled a whole new set of questions that we continue to come back to over and over again. And one last final point that bears mentioning is that um, uh, the thinkers we're going to be encountering this week in our discussion of modernity and its critics and, and in the um, 
early part of the modern period and even into the early the late 19th and early 20th century are all European men. Um, and it, it's important to note that the, I, we're not focusing on them, ex, you know, in the sense that they are correct or, you know, more sophisticated or smarter. In, in some ways, um, we could argue that in many ways, a lot of their thinking was, was not um, intellectually sound in, in some areas, perhaps, and critique them significantly. Why they are important, whether or not we find them to be, um, you know, of high level or, or their work to be valuable or, or um, you know, correct or, or have some value to it in, in that sense, is that their perspective and their understanding of modernity was not just a reflection or, or a kind of understanding of the time, but in some ways, a lot of their ideas helped to shape the times. And um, again, in, 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 in various ways, Western thought and Western ideologies were um, spread around the world, very often through colonialism, sometimes not directly through colonialism, through other means of influence. And, and again, that is not a celebration, some triumph of the West. That is just in a, in, in a reflection of how global intellectual processes have unfolded. And there's been a lot of pushback against that in the last 30 or 40 years in particular, um, you know, trying to rediscover and, and re-establish um, more localized and um, indigenous forms of knowledge that were lost or um, appropriated and, and, you know, reformulated uh, within the Western canon. And I think that's important to consider that we're not looking at these um, white European men as some sort of ultimate authority or some sort of superior authority, but we're looking at them as important people that shaped um, and, and pushed ideas forward that drove um, the action and behavior of European powers, particularly Western European powers, um, and those who ran the large empires um, during this period, in a way that had dramatic impacts all over the world, um, for better or for not. And I think there's a strong case it can make for not, right? So this is, again, and so it's not a, a triumphalist story. We're not looking at these people as some sort of special highly intellectual or thinkers that are in some superior position, but we're looking at them who are in a very important intellectual place in a very important moment in time who had dramatic effects on how people behaved and thought about things all over the world for better or for not. I mean, we can point to Marx, um, who certainly in terms of his views on non-European societies had some extremely problematic or not very, um, enlightened perspectives, but nonetheless, it would be hard to argue that Karl Marx has not had in, in his ideas and those who have adopted them, whether we think they're good or bad, has had profound effects all over the world. As one example, ditto Adam Smith. There's a lot of acolytes of Adam Smith in India, in South America, um, in Africa, right? And so, um, these, these thinkers and their ideas, uh, have, have an important role in shaping the world. And that is different from saying they are good or somehow have some sort of superior insights to them. So I just kind of wanted to add that. I think it's an important point of clarity and, and it's important to keep that in mind as we look at um, the thinkers of this period uh, that we're going to be exploring in class next week. Okay, well, thank you guys so much for listening. I'm really looking forward to the class next week. I'm looking forward to seeing your comments and have 
um, a great rest of the weekend and i'll see you in class next week thanks